Let's just come and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we know that that you are a God who is able, that in every circumstance we place, face in life, that you're able to come and enter into that, that you're able to stand by our side, that you're able to bring us through it, and you're able to even walk in our lives in the midst of it. Lord, you are able. But what matters is that we turn to you and we take hold of all you have. Teach us more of this, we pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you, you frequently hear, in fact, about a year ago I actually spoke on this, looking at a different psalm. You often hear people talking about the valley and, and the mountaintop experiences of the Christian life. Indeed, these are actually two examples of Christian jargon that are just about impossible to avoid if, if you're around Christians for any kind of time period. Christians who today in the ever fast-paced, ever more fast-paced and emotionally charged society we live in really do seem to know more than their fair share of those spiritual ups and downs that these two phrases speak of. But you know, there are one or two queries that I have though, both with these phrases and also with the, the experiences underlying them. For instance, is every experience that's labelled a mountaintop experience, that's labelled a, a spiritual high, is everyone truly an event of spiritual significance and substance? I don't think so. No, to be honest, I believe a fair number of them, more than we'd maybe like to imagine, are more emotionally based rather than spiritually based. Now, I know that's a serious charge to make, so let me just share with you a little bit of the thinking and the observations that have led me, certainly, to this conclusion. And one is, when someone claims to have gone through a climatic spiritual experience in their life, but that makes no real long-term difference to them, either to the quality of their spiritual life or to their behavior, lifestyle, to their moral standards in total. To put it more simply, and certainly to put it in more biblical phraseology, when their experience bears no real fruit in their lives. Another closely related factor that ties in here is when a claimed spiritual experience evaporates overnight. And we find someone who's claimed an overpowering experience of God so quickly, once again, in the doldrums. And I've seen it again and again. Now, we are all, I have to say, different. And God made us differently. God works in us differently. But still, surely, if God has truly done something in us, then surely something of the vitality and the life and, and the fire even that that might arouse in us, surely that will last more than overnight, than a few hours. Now, of course, I realize that even with a genuine spiritual experience, that that experience, genuine or not, will eventually come to nothing if it's not nurtured, if it's not developed. But when something fades away almost overnight, surely then we have to ask questions about just what it was that was actually experienced. Was it an encounter with the eternal and all-powerful, holy and majestic God, could something so short-lived possibly be? Or was it something else? But there's another question about those valley mountaintop experiences 
that's always bothered me, and that is, how do I get from one to the other? And I'm only interested in one-way traffic at this point. So how can I, how can we most quickly and most effectively get from the valley back onto that mountaintop of praise and, and thanksgiving to God? And this is a vital question for me, as I'm sure as it is for many of you. For so often in my life, I've found that fight back up the mountain, a pretty slow and tortuous and agonizing process. But I want to say that I believe that, that here in this particular psalm of David, we find a psalm that tells us of something of this kind of episode in his life. And here we find, I believe, instruction, teaching. That if we make this part of our life, we'll make our climb back up the mountain not easy, because it never is, but certainly easier. Perhaps not immediate, but certainly far swifter than it maybe has been. But before we begin the climb up the mountain, we've got to first join David in his valley. And we find him there in a state of desolation. Verse 1 and verse 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Now, I think that cry that's constantly repeated here, how long? I think that, that really lets us know just where David was spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. That he'd reached the stage where it seemed to him almost impossible to believe that life had ever been any better and even harder to believe that it could ever possibly improve. You see, this is life at its very lowest ebb. This is an almost unbreakable experience of total unrelenting blackness. Now, we don't know what precisely had caused this, we don't know whether he's going through a period of, of sickness in his life, whether he just suffered a family tragedy, or whether this was just one of those periods of spiritual depression, that those who are spiritually sensitive and open to the Lord and engaged right there in the front line of service and so of conflict with the enemy, which they appear to be particularly susceptible to. And many of the, the great men of the Bible fall in to this kind of category. Men like Abraham, men like David, men like Jeremiah, men like Paul, etc. And, and outside of the pages of the Bible, we find some great heroes of the faith. Men like Martin Luther, like John Wesley, men like Spurgeon, who've all fallen victim to what often is popularly known as the long, dark night of the soul. But we can't be precisely sure what caused David's depression here, even what period of his life it occurred in. But what we can be sure of is of the effect that this had on him. And certainly its main effect was in the realm of the spiritual. How long, O Lord, verse 1, how long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, in, in the Bible, talking of God forgetting me and talking of God hiding his face from me, this is really just a, a way of saying that God's withholding 
his help and his presence from my life practically. Basically, that I'm in a fix, I'm in a state, I'm in a predicament in my life, and God's doing nothing, or he appears to be doing nothing to help me. God's silent and far from me. I want to ask which of us who are Christians here tonight haven't known this kind of experience in our life. And you see here for David, it's not so much the situation that he's in that bothers him. It's not even so much the fact that God appears to be withholding his help from him even. No, it's what this seems to imply in terms of his personal relationship with God. It's this that really piles on the agony for him. For you see, he'd felt that he had a father-child relationship with his God. So how then can his father, the one he believes and knows as his father, or so he thought, apparently leave him uncaringly in this kind of situation? So he's thinking maybe he was mistaken. Perhaps his God wasn't really a father who cared after all. Perhaps he didn't really have that kind of relationship of depth and of intimacy that he thought he had. Now that's the kind of, of spiritual anguish, of inner spiritual turmoil that I believe underlies David's words here in, in verse 1. Just that sense of, of being and feeling spiritually abandoned, spiritually forsaken. Very similar then to how he felt in Psalm 22, where there he wrote the, the famous words that later were used by Jesus in that moment of ultimate spiritual crisis on the cross. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? And very similar also to the words of Job, one of the Bible's great sufferers. Job, who cried out in his agony to the Lord in Job 30, verse 20. He says, I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. So you see, David here is a man who's having the spiritual foundations of his life shaken. He's in trouble. He's hurting. He needs God more than he ever has. But God doesn't seem to be there for him. God doesn't seem to care. So can he really trust a God like this? Can he? Does he really have a relationship with this God? But as many of us know as well, I'm sure, in our personal experience, if we really have a spiritual life, if we're really spiritual people then this isn't actually something that we can isolate off from the rest of our lives. No, if we are spiritual and have a relationship with God, then when that's impacted, that then overflows and affects every other area of our life as well. And so we find David, who feels that his, his relationship with God has become disjointed, we find David himself becoming disjointed within. Verse 2. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? You see, because his spiritual relationship with God is out of sorts, out of kilter, 
because that anchor that he has in the Lord seems to him to be breaking loose. Because of that, every other area of his life has been thrown into disarray mentally, emotionally, deep within himself, in every way, his life is in turmoil. You see, because he's no longer sure of the Lord, he's no longer sure of anything. He no longer knows what decisions to take, what direction to go in, what to hope for. He's confused, and this confusion is tearing him apart within. This really is a picture of a man who as a whole person is on the verge of disintegration. But it's not only his relationship with the Lord that's causing him problems. It's not only, in a sense, his relationship with himself that's causing him problems. No, it's also his relationship with the evil one. There again, verse 2. How long will my enemy triumph over me? You see, David realizes here that living in the way that he is that the devil is gaining the upper hand, that the devil is winning the victory in his life. And this is something that it would seem undeniably here that fills him with shame about his failure and with uncertainty about his future. And notice also what he says in the second half of verse 4, where he says, my foes will rejoice when I fall. Now you see, what this here is getting at is David's awareness that if things are to continue in the way that they're going, if the devil is to continue to get the upper hand in his life, well, then if this continues, his personal enemies, human enemies, here and now enemies, the ever-present enemies of a godly king, a godly leader, that they'd be quick to seize the opportunity this provides and seek to oust him from power. So you see, David really is in a state of desolation. He's at his lowest ebb. He really is in the valley. So how then does he find his way out? How can we find our way out? Well, let's move on and look next at his prayer of dedication in verse 3 and 4, where he says, Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemies will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Well, what do we find then in this prayer? Well, I believe we find two main elements that again and again we also find to the fore and expressed in other Psalms of David. First of all, we find a statement that becomes almost a beseeching cry. He's stating it, but he's reaching out to God as he cries out that states just how important God is for his life and just who this God is, who he's putting his trust in. Look to me and answer, O God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And then the other main element that we find in this prayer is an awareness also of Satan and of Satan's great purpose in our lives. That is, by whatever means possible, do whatever he can, bring whatever opposition into our lives that he can bring in order to destroy us, to pull us down, and so to make us useless in the service of God. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice 
when I fall. And you'll hear a light that the comment that's made by Derek Kidner in his book on the Psalms with regard to, to these two different elements. And this is what Kidner, this is what he says. Awareness of God and of the enemy is virtually the hallmark of every Psalm of David. The positive and negative charge which provided the driving force of his best years. But why was it that prayer, prayer with these two different elements within it, had such a creative effect in David's life? That, that charge that pushed, pushed him forward. Why? Well, because I believe it reminded him, first of all, of the nature of the world that he lived in and also of the nature of the God that he worshipped. You see, it reminded him as he prayed this prayer that this isn't a world where as a believer he could expect an easy ride. Not that far from it. This world is a fallen world. This world is a sinful world. This is a world that right now is groaning under the effect, under the impact of our sin. And this is a world where Satan, with his authority, though to some extent limited, is nevertheless very real and far-reaching. But as he prayed this prayer, he was also reminded that at the same time that this ultimately is a world that is under the sovereign, overruling power of a sovereign, almighty God. So you see, as David remembered all this in his prayer, this transformed the situation that he was in. Not in the sense that the situation itself was changed. I don't believe that it was. It's certainly not immediately. No, but what was transformed was David's attitude to it. Because you see, he realized afresh, he was reminded that what he was going through was actually no more than he as a sinner could expect in a sinful world. And he realized afresh just what the evil one was about, just what Satan was trying to do in this situation, and that is destroy him, or at least neutralize him in terms of any kind of effectiveness in God's service. The devil was just trying to destroy his spiritual potential. And that as he continued to look in on himself, as he continued to focus on himself and his circumstances, and to be allow himself to be consumed by self-pity, this is just what was happening. This is what the devil was doing. David realized all this, but he also realized what he had to do here. And that was to look instead to the Lord, to resist that temptation to look in, to resist that temptation to be overwhelmed by life's circumstances and choose instead to look to the God who could take the same situation, the same set of circumstances that Satan intended for destruction, and who by his sovereign power and his infinite love could instead, as he did at the cross, could instead turn this world's worse to blessing. Blessing for himself and blessing for God as God is glorified in him. Blessing. Again, not in terms maybe of a quick release from the circumstances that he faced and the trials that he was going through. Blessing not in terms perhaps of 
you know, prosperity and health and wealth and everything going right, but blessing in terms of growing in spirit and maturity, knowing God near, knowing God's power and enabling, and because of that, growing in Jesus Christ. You see, David has forgotten, as many of us, I think, are just so much inclined to do. He seems to have forgotten that suffering for God, going through a hard time in this world, is inevitable in a sinful, fallen world. But that at the same time, in God's hands, the same suffering can be used as the surest route to growth and spiritual maturity. Because you see, it's as in the Lord we take on and face up to evil and all the suffering and antagonism that evil brings. It's then that truly we're closest to the heart of the God of the cross and it's then God comes close to us. In the famous words of C.S. Lewis where he says, God whispers to us in our joy but he shouts to us in our pain. But it all depends on us being ready to listen. God's shouting, but are we listening? Paul says very much the same thing in his even more famous words in Romans 5 verse 3. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. See, that's the difference. It's the love. It's the power of God. It's not that we get out of the circumstances, but it's that the love and the power of God is able to transform us. You see, so often what our problem is, is that like David, we just want to be finished with our suffering. We just want it to be over. We just want to be out of the situation. And so all too frequently, because of that, because that's all that's there for us, we're broken from it and we certainly learn nothing from it. What I say to you, I don't believe it's wrong for us to want suffering to be over because the roots of suffering are in evil and it's not wrong. But that needs to be balanced. That needs to be combined along with that desire to have this over and done with. That needs to be balanced, combined with a discipline to look to God in it and a desire to learn from God in it too. You see, we have to bring God into the picture. When we're going through hard times, when we're going through challenging periods, we need to bring the sovereign, loving God into the picture. If ever we're going to be the people God wants us to be. Let me just share with you here an illustration I found a while ago in a, a book by John Perry that as I, I, I thought about it and read it, I thought, you know, it's got a lot to say about the Christian life. And it's a, a story of a man who began a study of butterflies. And we're told that, that two cocoons of an extraordinarily beautiful specimen were placed where the spring sun would shine on them. And under the warmth, they began to stir. One a little in advance of the other broke open and a butterfly appeared. 
And since this variety of butterfly was famed for the splendor of its colors, he was perplexed by the fact that this little creature's wings were drab. As it struggled to work itself free of the shell, he noted that it was being held by a tiny little white cord. And with his pen knife, he cut the thread and liberated the fragile struggler. It flew about the room, but to his dismay, there was no sign of that glorious colour. With the second cocoon, he decided to go another way and to let nature take its course. There was the same initial struggle. There was the same slender thread. There was the same seeming frustration on the part of the newborn insect. For more than an hour, the little creature fought for its freedom. Now imagine how long an hour is for a butterfly. But even before the struggle was over, the colour began shooting out through its wings. And when at last the battle was won, those wings were simply glorious. Isn't too hard, is it, to apply that to the struggles that David faced here and the struggles that all of us at different times and in different ways face in our life. Struggle is hard, but struggle with God produces depth, maturity, and color. So David was in a state of desolation. He then prayed a prayer of dedication. And we finish now with David finally on the mountaintop with an experience of delight. Verse 5 and 6, David says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. And the key note here is, of course, certainty. It's certainty that as David, as by an act of the will, by an act of faith, and it wasn't easy, as he's turned from himself, from his circumstances, to instead look toward his God. Well, as he's done this, so his mind and heart have simply been filled with remembrance of all that God has done for him in his life. That great initial act of salvation. My heart rejoices, he says, in your salvation. And then also with the memory of the continuing acts of deliverance, experience of blessing, that from that time on he's known repeatedly in his experience. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. You see, in the midst of it all, David knows God. He knows who he is. He knows what God did for him. He knows the way that again and again God has drawn close to him and has been at work in his life. And so now he's ready to trust this God again in the hard times of life. Now he's ready again to give thanks no matter what. I will trust in your unfailing love do you see then the difference that it makes turning from ourselves turning from our circumstances 
to look instead truly to God, recognizing who he is, what he has done. Here we see a man who by this has had his faith renewed, a man whose thinking has been transformed, and all of this because not with any great show of strength or confidence, but instead to the contrary with an awareness of his weakness broken and his need, but with all those all-important qualities of humility and submission. We see that because he turned from himself and looked to God, his life was turned around. I want to say to you tonight, when you're in your valley, and all of us have been there and you know, will be there again, when you're in your valley, when life's hard and dark, all the devil wants to do is keep you down there and grind you down. And if all you're interested in is yourself, and if all you're looking for is the easiest way out of this, in this world's terms, then that's just what the devil will do. He'll keep you down there. And you may make it up a little bit, and he'll get you down, and he'll keep you down, and it'll go on and on. But if instead you look to the Lord, if your first thought in your circumstances gradually becomes his glory and his blessing, if that's the thought that comes to you and you focus on, if you live like that, then God will draw you back up onto that mountaintop. Maybe not immediately, but a lot quicker than in any other way. Where would you rather be? Weeping in that valley or giving thanks on that mountaintop? I know where I would rather be. I'm sure I know where you would rather be. So I say, look in the right place. Look to the right one. And that's where he'll lift us all. That's where he'll take us. Back to that mountaintop with him. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you that you're the God who is with us in every experience. Lord, we, we're weak people, we're fragile, we're sinful people, and so we do find ourselves in the valley. We're not machines, and circumstances in life hurt us. We get broken down, and the devil wants to keep us down there. But Lord, help us in those times to make that decision to turn from ourselves, to refuse to focus on what's going on around us or in our lives, but instead to look to you, to remember who you are, to remember what you've done, to focus on you and to seek you that by your love and power and grace that you might lift us up again. Father, you are our faithful God, and we bring you our praise now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.